Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. How did African Americans react to slavery? What factors, particularly religion, might shape those reactions, even making them violent? Dr. Patrick Breen, in his carefully researched and cogently written The Land Shall Be Deluged in Blood, published by Oxford University Press in 2015, sheds light on these questions through a meticulous study of the slave rebellion led by Nat Turner. With its careful attention to the historiography on the rebellion, its considerations of the veracity of the Confessions of Nat Turner, the primary source that serves as the center of studies on the Rising, and its treatment of how churches reacted to the Rising, this work is not only of interest to scholars, but could easily be adopted into a college-level survey of American history or a course introducing the historian's craft. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Breen about his new book, The Land Shall Be Deluged by Blood. Patrick, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So, I wonder if we can start off um, how we usually start off. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, um, I'm a historian up at Providence College, so I'm up in New England, uh, where I've been for 15 years now. Uh, But I did my education actually in the South. I got my PhD from the University of Georgia. Um, I've been studying slavery and uh, slave society since the uh, since actually college. I was at, uh, at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, and there was a visiting professor coming to town. And uh, my advisor, who knew I was interested in history, said, "You know, I think you might want to take this guy." And uh, I did. And the guy's name was Eugene Genovese, and one of the big names in African American history. And once I had taken his class. I was interested in this material and, and kept studying it. And you know, went to grad school, uh, wrote my dissertation, wrote my book, got a job, and now this is what I do. Excellent, excellent. And, and how did you come to write then this book in particular? What was it that that drew you to to Nat Turner and to write a monograph about him? Well, I had been studying Virginia uh, in part because I had been working in Virginia sources because. From the beginning, I had been in Williamsburg and in Virginia, and um, so I was trying to think of something that would allow me to do uh, a, a, a narrow event, to explore a narrow event, to really see how power existed in a slave society. And um, you know, I was just banging my head trying to think of well, what could I do? I don't want it to be too big. I can't do the Civil War because you can't do that. It's just too big. I want something narrow, but that might allow us. To what actually happens in slavery. And uh, I kept banging my head, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me, of course, Nat Turner was the exact thing that I wanted to do. It had been sitting before me in plain sight. In fact, it, one of the funny things was uh, when I was in high school, uh, one of my summer reading books was William Styron's The Confessions of Nat Turner. Um, so I had been well familiar with this material for a long time. Uh, and I remember reading it as a, uh, as a 17 or 18-year-old and just reading the first 10 or 15 pages, thinking, is this real? 
what really happened. And as it turns out, I went through and uh, did a dissertation writing about it, and I wrote a book about it. Well, and that goes to the the center of your book, because there's a lot of controversy about the veracity of the confessions of Nat Turner. So could you tell us, and that's key, because it's like a a central document for the uh, rising. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, you know, one thing is you can look at the document itself. Uh, you, 
and this is readily available on the internet. If anyone wants to look at it, they can. Um, when you look at the internal evidence, you notice things like what Thomas Gray says in his account is different from what the, the stuff that's in quotes where Nat Turner's speaking. They disagree about stuff. Um, and that's, you know, that's, well, if he was making it up, why would he dis why would he contradict himself? Uh, but even more interesting, would Nat, uh, uh, Thomas Gray put insertions in the text? He, he sat there and he, he would put parent, parenthetical notes, like, you know, Tom, uh, Nat Turner would say something like, you know, uh, there was a sign from God that we were going to start a revolt. And then in parentheses it would say, the eclipse of the sun, or something like that. And what's going on here is uh, Turner is saying something. Gray doesn't know what the sign is, and so he asked him, you know, and the men I most trusted. Gray asks, who are they? And then he writes it parenthetically. These parenthetical notes are incredibly important because it shows that he's willing to let Turner make a mistake. And ultimately, I think when you look at the story of the battle, um, the battle really, uh, what Gray knows about the battle is different from what Turner knows about the battle. And there's really a strong difference, you know, a really sharp difference and that really allows us to see that what Gray is doing is taking that Turner's voice. So one way you can look at it is internally to the document. There's a lot of reasons. And there's much, much more. I mean, I wrote a whole chapter on this. Uh, but the other basic kind of argument is you can look at the extrinsic stuff, the stuff outside. Um, you know, there's one thing. You know, the confessions are actually... Gray knows that people are going to wonder if this is authentic. The reason people are reading it is because it's supposed to be Nat Turner's voice. And so he's trying to find, he tries to put stuff in where people say, you know, this is actually the confessions of Nat Turner. The, 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 the clerk of the court writes an affidavit. Many of the justices sign an affidavit saying that it was read. Now, of course, these could be made up, but I think that there's really good reason to think that they weren't. Um, for example, when he puts together the list of the judges who sentenced Nat Turner to death, he does not include all the judges, including the person who read Nat Turner's confessions to the court. Now, if you're if you're going to be forging these guys' name and just sort of falsely signing their names onto this document, you'd include everyone, but he didn't. And my theory is the reason he didn't include them was because um, he didn't, couldn't get those guys' signatures. He was getting at they had left court. Uh, most of them had left court. Most of the judges whose signatures he got stayed around for the next case. And so he was able to get a bunch of signatures for the judges, but not all of them. Uh, so there's, you know, so when he puts stuff in, I tend to believe it. And then, then there's other accounts. Uh, one account says that uh, I was going to write more about the confessions. Nat Turner was speaking freely to people at the jail, says one newspaper article. And I was going to write more, but someone is writing these down verbatim. Which is so someone at the time is saying he's writing them verbatim. Now people have come up and you can none of these are proofs that he, he did it, but when you look at the entire corpus and you look at it ready to believe that he did it or didn't, I think that the weight of the evidence is strongly on the side that it is actually what Thomas R. Gray says, which is Matt Turner's own voice coming through us this, which is really a makes it a remarkable document. I mean some of the greatest sources we have in African American history, and especially the history of slavery, are slave narratives. Guys like Frederick Douglass, right? Their narratives. Well, this is the narrative of the most important slave rebel. 
Bible in American history. It's such a precious document. And I think of, as a profession, we've shied away from using it just because of the questions about its authenticity. I think it's a really far richer and stronger document, and it's really uh, well worth looking at. And so when I wrote my book, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to use this document. I'm going to sort of take it um, as what Nat Turner says. And he might not be right about everything, and he might, you know, there, there, there are mistakes in the confessions and confusions and all sorts of problems, and which I don't deny. You know, it's not like God's writing this. This isn't, this isn't you know, an omniscient point of view, but it is Nat Turner telling us a story. It's telling, uh, Nat Turner telling his story, and it's such a precious thing that we have it. Excellent, excellent. And I, I found this very interesting, and I, I very much enjoyed. And for our, our, our um, audience, this is in the afterword of the text. So now that Patrick has, you know, I think established very well the veracity of this document, um, and has written a book that that uses that document a great deal. Could you tell us, Patrick, how does your book then contribute to our understanding of Nat Turner's rebellion in particular and American slavery in general? Okay. Um, Nat Turner is really one of the most important figures in the historiography of American slavery. Um, and this is a long story. Nat Turner is someone who's been studied. He's famous. People have known about him even before the Civil Rights era, before the 1950s and 60s when the historical profession started worrying about African-American history. He was, you know, he was a leader of a slave revolt. People, historians knew about this. Uh, so it's someone that, he's someone that is, that is, uh, the, the profession has had to handle and has a long tradition of handling. Um, my book is going to really refine our ideas about resistance. Initially, when slavery was um, taught, uh, the first generation of professional historians, you're, you're, you're going to be talking about the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, you're going to be talking about 1900. Um, the profession was, was um, not particularly interested in African-American history. The profession was frankly racist. Uh, so it wasn't particularly interested in African-American history, and it wasn't particularly interested in African-American agency. You know, obviously slavery becomes something that's really bad if slaves are people who basically have the same rights as whites. Now, in 1900, lots of people thought, well, maybe they're human or whatnot, but they certainly don't deserve the same rights as whites because they're inferior. You know, there was a lot of racism around. And so Nat Turner um, is this figure who's just created, who's outlandish. He doesn't really fit. It's someone, uh, there's a, a book written about him in 1900, written by a guy who's from Southampton, whose family had members who were, I think died in the revolt. This is, you know, this is not a sympathetic portrait of Nat Turner. And the point was, Nat Turner didn't really fit. What, his, what those white historians taught about slavery was it wasn't really a bad situation. It wasn't a terrible thing. Uh, Phillips, one of the uh, most important, the most important uh, scholar of American slavery uh, before the Civil Rights Movement, who was unsympathetic to the Civil Rights Movement, basically used the metaphor of a school. You know, slavery is like a school. It's not that bad. You don't have complete rights in a school. The teacher's in charge, and you're not. Why? Because you're inferior. And so he used that as the model. Uh, when this view was being attacked, and it started, it was attacked by, um, by radical historians and African-American historians. One of the easiest places to attack that this was a good system and that people were happy under it and that African-Americans weren't really agents, 
weren't really trying to change the system, is to look for the people who tried to resist. Uh, one of the interesting stories is W.E. Du Bois, um, the, the, the famous civil rights activist, um, had wanted to do a, uh, uh, a biography of Frederick Douglass. And, um, and he got turned down because his rival, uh, Booker T. Washington, was enlisted to do it. And so the publisher sort of goes back to him and says, well, is there anyone else you want to do? He says, well, yeah, sure, I'll do Nat Turner. And the publisher's like, no, this is not a good idea. It's 1900, we don't want to start celebrating um, someone like uh, Nat Turner. So they eventually convinced him, if you want to do a rebel, do, do John Brown. And he did that. Um, unfortunately, we never got Du Bois' take on, uh, on Nat Turner. It would have been a, it would have been a great one. Uh, but Herbert Atheker, um, a communist historian, uh, got his master's in 1937 at Columbia University. Herbert Apthaker was attacking the old historiography of guys like Phillips. He's saying, no, this is not a good system. This is not basically okay. We're not going to put up with it. And so he's trying to find examples of people who resist. The very first person you're going to hit on is Nat Turner. And he wrote his master's thesis on Nat Turner. He expanded it into a dissertation where he tried to show that many people tried to resist slavery, which, of course, they did. There were many people who tried to resist slavery. And so this really launched um, the, the movement to really see slavery, um, slaves, as people, as full human people who are autonomous and had their own, uh, you know, had were trying to do their own things. They were their own agents. Um, so Nat Turner's at the, 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 the turning point of that. Now, I think the problem comes when, when you look at Nat Turner, you say, look, African-Americans didn't like slavery. African-Americans tried to fight slavery, which is true. But there's a movement to sort of create, make resistance the ultimate part of Af the African-American experience. That resistance is the heart and the soul, and it's what it means to be African-American. And I, it's not that I'm, I'm dissatisfied with that, because I think the African-American community, the African-American community in slavery is far more diverse than that. There's far many different responses, people going different places, and, and to sort of create sort of one blanket idea of what it means to be an African-American slave, to be an African-American slave is to be constantly resisting slavery, I think doesn't see how rich it is. African-American slaves did resist slavery, and others didn't, and there's a whole range of responses, and they have a whole lot of different reasons, and I think that the intricacy of these responses and the, and the intricacy of this world is something that we miss because historians in making their arguments have been trying to put resistance at the center of the African-American experience. And I, I think resistance belongs as a part of the African-American experience, but it's, it really warps the African-American experience, the experience of slavery, to sort of assume that basically for a couple hundred years you have the Civil War constantly being fought out in advance. It's not. It's not. There's, there's some people who are going to be doing this and there's some people who are not. And that's one of the things about what it means to live in an African-American society, to live in a slave society, is that not everyone's on the same page. And that's one of the things I think my story of the Nat Turner Revolt really, really shows. Yeah, I, and I think it shows that really well. And I, I'm sure that will come in over and over again as, our, as we continue through our interview. But for, for people who maybe aren't too familiar with the story, um, moving to your first chapter, Signs, 
Could you tell us a little about who Nat Turner was as a person before the rebellion? Sure. Nat Turner was a slave who was born on October 2nd, uh, 1800. He was 31. Um, was 30 when the, the revolt started. Uh, 31 when he died. Um, he was a slave in Southampton County, Virginia. Southampton County is on the border uh, of Virginia and North Carolina, so Southern Virginia. And it's, if you're thinking of the map of Virginia, it's about midway between Richmond and uh, Norfolk or Newport News, sort of on the southern coast, there, uh, southern, coast southern border right in the middle of um, Virginia. He was uh, married. He had a son uh, who we think is named Reddick. We don't, uh, historians have offered various possibilities as to his wife's name. I'm not confident in the sources that we have. I don't think any historians have really shown us, uh, have really shown us that some of the people aren't the the, uh, the, the spouse. So we, there's things we don't know, and it's, there's always going to be things that we don't know about slaves. And it's like, there's always going to be things we don't know about people from a couple hundred years ago. These um, the, Their entire lives are not recorded. Uh, but he was a slave. He was not an especially valuable slave, so he was not a particularly skilled slave, although he was, um, according to his confessions, he was a... Um, religious man and a, certainly a, 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 a religious figure of note. Uh, some people call him a preacher. He's not really a preacher. He's more of an exhorter. He isn't formally aligned with any church, but he does uh, go out and um, and uh, he's religiously active. So, so before the revolt, he's, oh, and the last thing is he's literate. Um, all not all slaves, of course, knew how to read. You know, the estimates of the number of slaves who knew how to read is 10 20%, so this isn't incredibly unprecedented, but it certainly is, um, it, it certainly is not, um, not common. So he was a, a, someone who knew how to read. And if I remember right, didn't he claim that God taught him how to read? Uh, no. Oh. no. Uh, he, he spoke to God, according to the right. confessions, uh, something that, uh, you know, this is one of the things I don't have a problem believing. Uh, but he said, uh, he said he was, he, it was a, well, okay. he said that it was a, uh, a miracle that he learned how to read. He wasn't taught. And so he took it as a sign of God that he learned how to read. Now, this is one of the places he disagrees with Gray. When Gray writes it, he says his parents taught him how to read. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, okay. Um, you know, it's, he didn't believe any of this stuff that,
And, and how does the the this you know this religious aspect how does that that shape the origins of the rebellion? August, another sign came. 
And this time it was, it's a weird sign. I don't know exactly what it's from. I think it's from a volcano. Um, but the sun appeared a blue-green, according to some accounts. And there are various accounts across the eastern United States where they see this. It wasn't just a localized phenomenon. It was, a, uh, I think, in New Orleans. It was certainly in Richmond and other places. Um, and he took that. There's, there it is. God really wants him to start the revolt. And so the next weekend, um, they started the revolt. But at that point, the revolt was a really, really uh, very small. Right. And why did he want to keep it so small? I mean, I would think you'd want a whole bunch of people to revolt. Right. And I, it's, I think it's in your introduction. That's one of my, uh, I, I don't know if I should say laugh out loud moments, but I love that part where you write something, you know, historians often don't realize organizing a slave revolt that's successful is really hard. Oh, here we are. Page eight, you write, it is really hard for a slave revolt to succeed. <laughs> right, right. You know, and it's one of those things that unless you say that, you know, certainly this is a book that I was trying to write in a way that it'd be accessible to, you know, a broader audience. Um, you know, one of the things you gotta do is you gotta remind people this is not, you know, while the aesthetics of the revolt and the politics of the revolt might be very attractive today, uh, the practicality of the revolt, which is something the rebels themselves were very aware of, made it a completely different kind of experience. 
So once the revolts, could you tell us, so the revolt starts, what is the first stage of it like, and what role did Nat Turner and another rebel, Will, play? And you, you talk, and I mean, th- this chapter and, and the third chapter, it's it's really just chilling, the, the violence that you describe. Um, 
it's, it's horrific. You know, I kind of got chills as I read it, but, um, you know, so they, they go through and they, they have this idea. We're going to kind of engage in this general massacre. This will help to, to lead to this rising. That's their hope. How then though, as they're conducting this massacre, they're meeting a bunch of slaves because most of the people they massacre are, are slave owners. How do these slaves react to the presence of Nat Turner and his forces? Yeah, this is this is this is this is where they rolled the dice. They they said, you know, we they were trying to figure out a way to make this revolt work, and they couldn't. They were like, well, it doesn't really make sense. We got four guys. They got you know thousands. They got the army. We don't have anything. They said, that, well, the only way we can get it to work is if we have a grand general uprising. But remember, they said we can't have an uprising where we tell everyone about it in advance because the whites will find out. So how are we going to get the blacks to all of a sudden? One of the things they do, and I'm the first one to point to this, is they come up with the idea of if we start killing whites, including women and children, you know, blacks will see that this really is the time to uprise. This is, you know, the fear that we have of whites is going to sort of dissipate. Now, this isn't guaranteed to work. I don't think it's a very likely plan, but then again, you sit down and think about it for a couple of years, it's hard to come up with a very likely plan to succeed. But they said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to try to make it easier for the blacks to join us. And they thought this, this would work. Now, some blacks did join. You know, they got, they certainly had, uh, you know, 60, maybe 80 people with them. Uh, by the end, not everyone was especially willing. Uh, not everyone was an active fighter. But, you know, they certainly had dozens. And these were mostly, uh, they were all, the people traveling with them were men, very few exceptions, and young men. Again, with very few exceptions. So people did rise up. This is the moment where all the frustration and anger we've had at the system of slavery, you know, we can finally do what we've wanted to do. But at the same time, other people didn't. You know, and the slaveholders are going to write about this later, uh, not later, I mean, you know, weeks later, uh, as they're trying to figure out what happened. And they're going to say, you know, the one, uh, a month later in the Richmond Wick, uh, there's a, there's a, a person wrote a letter saying, quote, I must here pay a passing tribute to our slaves, but one which they richly deserve. It is that there's not a single instance of disaffection in any section of our county, save on the plantations which Nat, Captain Nat visited. And to their credit, the recruits were few, and from the chief settlements among them, not a man was obtained. So he's saying, at the big plantations, no one was recruited. And I think you go through and you look at some of the big plantations that Nat Turner's men visited, and like... Uh, there were new Harris has uh, has you know something like eighty slaves and he didn't and there's no evidence that any slaves from New Harris's plantation joined. Uh, so this is not I mean it's not completely right because there were a couple of people who joined the revolt who um, weren't from plantations that Nat Turner visited. Certainly there were people who tried to join the revolt, um, but not many. The basic idea here I think is is more right than wrong. Um, there, there it was very hard, and 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 the the revolt was basically rolling the dice and saying that the blacks would rise once they heard that there was an army of of, of blacks killing uh, killing whites, and it didn't happen. Um, and and so this, you know, it's going to take a day or two for the revolt to be put down, but it never gets that sort of power that some of the revolts had. Never had thousands of people involved, which could have happened. I mean, Southampton County is a county where you've got a fairly even split in the population between uh, African-American people and uh, and whites. But the, the vast majority of the blacks, I think, 
And how is it? I, I mean, how is it finally put down? Well, the um, uh, the whites uh, start chasing uh, blacks. I mean, basically, whites flee from their houses once they hear that this happens, and they gather in woods and wherever. Um, but eventually, some houses become strongholds, and the families gather there, and men uh, basically start riding after white men start riding after the rebels, and uh, the rebels are making their way. Jerusalem. They um, are, are, are chased by these guys, and eventually one group of them uh, catch up to them while they're on James Parker's farm. They're recruiting at James Parker's farm. Um, there's actually a group by the gate, which is away from the farm, uh, a group of rebels. Those rebels are dispersed, which isn't surprising because they're sort of the more hesitant rebels. Uh, then this Turner realizes that their sleep is over, gets his, gets his group 
politicians, uh, Simon Blunt's farm. And it's at this farm, uh, they're bushwhacked. They, you know, the, 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 the whites hadn't left the plantation. They thought the whites had left the plantation, so they were just going to try to recruit the slaves. But the whites hadn't left. And, um, you know, the rebels were, you know, the, the, the guys hold, holding the place were able to take free shots at the, the rebels who were approaching the farmhouse. Um, this sent the rebels into complete disarray again. And by the end of that day, sort of Tuesday, the second day of the revolt, um, the rebels had, were no longer a cohesive fighting force, and there would be scattered rebels seen uh, throughout the area for uh, a week, maybe, uh, although Nat Turner himself would be able to escape for about, um, uh, about a month. He, he wasn't discovered. This, the revolt happened in August, August 21st and 22nd of 1831. He's not discovered until um, the end of October. Right. And and after the revolt, then, you know, there was this this great fear among the white population and groups of whites started to, to massacre blacks. But then they stopped. Um, could you tell us a little bit more? What what stopped that process? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. The whites were, I mean, not surprisingly, I think the whites were enraged. I mean, this this the idea that people were going to come and kill, as they saw it, innocent women and children was infuriating to the whites. And so there's going to be a lot of people out because 
are not a citizen. How can they be treasonous? You know, like, but so what happens to those guys are let go. I mean, it's amazing uh, what uh, how much the leaders were trying to make the revolt seem small. And the reason I'm, I argue in my book is not because they were especially sympathetic to slaves and slaves' plight, but because they were worried about the dangers that could come from a white population that would feel free to kill African Americans. Um, and so that is, um, uh, they, I, I argue that they were very successful. And in fact, one of the things I argue is that the number of blacks killed after the revolt is much lower than any of the estimates that people have had for the last hundred years or so. When people have looked at the numbers, it's much, much higher. And I think that the numbers, uh, the number of people killed after the revolt without trials is probably in the 30s. Uh, and so the total number of African Americans killed in the revolts, when you count trials and non trials, is going to be actually about the number of uh, whites killed. It'll probably be somewhere in the 50s. It's uh, sort of a remarkable, uh, a remarkable thing, which you know is, is not how we imagine the revolt. Certainly not how people portray it or think about it. In, you know, given so much of what we know about uh, African American history and the sort of uh, the violence that came from much less provocation sort of surprising to see that the numbers were um, as low as they are. And you mentioned the the importance and the power of, of slaveholders in shaping the trials. Could you tell us how they shaped the narrative of the revolt that came out of the trials? Right. Um, so well, the slaveholders were completely in control of um, the, the courts. Uh, to be a member of, uh, to be a judge, you were a slaveholder. And you weren't just a slaveholder. You were one of the more important slaveholders. And, and that's true of pretty much everyone involved in the process. The sheriffs, the DAs, uh, well, there's one DA, there's one prosecuting attorney who's actually uh, the son of one of, uh, a major slaveholder who's in charge of the military response. Um, so it's this small group of people who are really in charge of this. And, and what they're trying to do, uh, what they do is they use their power as military leaders, as lawyers, as judges, Say, you know what? This is not this is not a sign that all the slaves are dangerous. In Southampton, they do a really good job of saying, you know, I want to find evidence of you that you were involved, and more than that, that you weren't just sort of dragooned and forced to go, but that you were that you were a willing participant. And so there was a high bar. It's sort of interesting. There's another set of trials that takes place in the next county over. Uh, whites aren't sure if this is a broad uh, revolt or not. And so in the next county over, they start trying people, and they are much less, um, they're much less concerned about the African Americans and whether uh, their rights are being prosecuted. In fact, one of the things that happens is some people are going to be discharged in Southampton and then charged in Southampton County, I mean in Sussex County. Well, as it turns out, uh, they see the revolt, any sign of caring about the revolt was a sign that you were involved in the revolt and you were a participant, you were willing and you should be executed. Sussex County ends up convicting a lot of people. And there's an interesting story that comes out of this. A guy named Boston is convicted but breaks out of jail. Um, there's a jailbreak. There's a there's a half dozen, actually eight or nine people in the jail um, waiting their execution. They're going to die. So, you know, why not die today instead of tomorrow? They stage a jailbreak. And interestingly, this one guy makes it away, and he, and he makes it away for um, three or four years. 
And finally, he's recaptured in 1835. And when he's recaptured, you see these letters. And the court says, we were wrong. We thought everyone was involved in the revolt and that it was a big revolt that was dangerous and we had to kill all these people. And we were wrong. And they look at the case of Boson and they're writing a, a petition to the governor to, to commute his sentence and saying, you know, he didn't deserve to die. And it's sort of interesting because when they do this, they say, we were wrong. And the Southampton court shows that this was small, that a lot of, not a lot of people were involved in it. And it's, this revolt was really not that dangerous. And so that idea was a very powerful one, and it was able to ultimately stop um, whites who didn't have slaves from revolting and other slave owners who were terrified from outside the county from responding in a way that would be really dangerous to the slaveholders of Southampton County. Well, excellent, excellent. Now, what I um, and you've done a great job with the narrative of the the book itself and it, this kind of historiographical examination and, and d- description of how all this went down. And one thing also I, I liked about this book, and one reason I thought it would be you know interesting for the Christian Studies Channel to look at, was you have this chapter eight entitled Communion that looks at how the rebellion affects local churches. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your findings there. Or you get to have the slaves 
and ultimately the church, which was governed not by the slaveholders, this is a Baptist church, that's so going to be governed by the white members. Blacks obviously aren't going to be voting, they're not going to be controlling what the church policy on black membership is going to be. But the white church says, no, we're going to have blacks as members. And they gave the whites their letter of dismission. They said, you're out of here. And a couple months later, the whites come back and say, actually, well, we still want to be part of the church, and that was all well and good. But ultimately, that vision of not having the entire black community set against slavery and not figuring out a way to have community with black community, with the black community, the whites ultimately came to accept, I think, what the what the uh, what the slave leaders, uh, the slaveholders were uh, were were arguing, which was Nat Turner's revolt. I found it fascinating, and it's uh, as your whole book. And one thing that I think is particularly interesting. One reason I wanted to interview you about about your book in particular is, I mean, it, it can't help but but have some connection to um, the complex racial, what can I say, context we face now in the United States. And you recognize that in the book and your conclusion. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what message do you think this rebellion has for us today. Excellent. Well, and I, like I said, this is a, a, a very rich book, and it's hard for us to do justice in, in just one hour. But I, I think we've got we managed to to hit a lot of your your main arguments, and I really did find this this fascinating. Um, and I I want to end then uh, with our traditional question: What are you working on now?
books, one of the most famous books in in, um, in the 19th century. It's Democracy in America, two volumes. And race is at, at, the, at the end of the first uh, at the end of the first volume. He writes this incredible volume, which is basically talking about democracy in America. And then he sort of ends it and says, "Okay, now at the end, now there's a problem I didn't address, which is race." And so I'm trying to work through and work on Alexis de Tocqueville and his ideas on race and how it fits into how we understand um, how we understand the racial situation of America then and now. So uh, that's what that's my current project. Excellent. Well, it sounds fascinating. Well, thank you again, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.